Welcome to the sermon podcast from North Decatur United Methodist Church, where all are welcomed and included, connected with God and with one another, and sent out in service and invitation to the world. Each week we bring you the most recent sermon from me, Patrick Fallhaber, or from guest preachers. Thank you for listening and subscribing. As John said to the kids, the last couple of weeks we've been talking um, about big movements within Methodism, which feels like a pretty nerdy subject, except for the fact that by you sitting in this room, you are part of that Methodist movement. So welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, The Methodist movement started in the 18th century, and it was led by a group of people who found no place for them in the establishment of the church in England. They were kicked out of churches all over the place. They were uh, taken from uh, churches where they had been given places to be able to preach because of the kind of life that they were trying to proclaim and the kind of message that they were trying to bring to the people. So in many ways, the Methodist movement uh, was a... um, It was a really complicated movement to be a part of. If you've ever seen, like, uh, the, the TV show Poldark, anybody into, like, weird PBS? Yes! Okay! Methodists are not treated well in that show, right? They're like the rabble-rousers, sort of crazy, a little bit weird, off the beaten path, and no one really likes them because of how weird they are, right? If you've, it, so in, there, in the beginning of the movement, Methodism was this like weird, estranged movement within society that was really built for and by the poor people in England who were operating outside of the structures of power which is a beautiful history and heritage. The problem is that we, the movement became so large that it turned into an institution. And in a lot of ways, it mimics the very same problems that the Church of England had in the 18th century. Can I get an amen from anybody about our structural issues? Uh, So today, I want to do two things, and I realize that they're two big things, and we won't be able to cover them completely, but I want to talk a little bit about where our United Methodist Church is right now, um, because it's complicated. And then I want to talk about why the movement and experience of the Spirit is so essential to our own personal faith. So we'll, we'll get there. We'll get to our own personal lives. But I want to talk really briefly about our United Methodist Church. Our United Methodist Church became the United Methodist Church in the 60s. It's not been a United Methodist Church for really all that long. Uh, Back in in the 1960s, two denominations decided that they would do more and greater good if they combined their resources and their ministries together in order to serve the communities in which they were a part. So they had their first general conference and created the Evangelical Brethren and the Methodist Episcopal Church, the United Methodist Church. And from there, we saw some incredible ministries start to take shape. The problem is, we do all of our decision-making through something called general conferencing. It's when good, faithful people gather together to discuss the business of the church, or the business, the work of the church, in faith and in life. And it can be really beautiful, but the 
problem, and this is my judgment, not anyone else's, and please don't tell my bishop. The problem is the people who want to go to general conference tend to be the people who love structures and love power. There are some notable exceptions to that. But often it's the case that people who love a bureaucracy and the latter rungs that it enables love being a part of general conferences. And so what often happens, and we saw this just last, the last time we had a general conference meeting, you end up having backroom deals being dealt in ways that look very similar to our American politics. In fact, one that became newsworthy and showed up in many uh, newspapers around the world last time we had a general conference was a group of people organized by a member of our North Georgia United Church, by the way, uh, that were giving bribes to hold delegations from other parts of the world, giving them iPads and real cash in order to sway their votes around how to make votes on the general conference floor, right? It is a mess and a half. Welcome to the United Methodist Church. If you're visiting... We'll get there. There's good news, I promise. Um, but th that's the kind of thing that tends to happen. And that happened almost immediately after the United Methodist Church was formed. In 1972, another general conference happened. And a movement was made from the floor after a clear uh, conversation had already been started to insert new language into the Book of Discipline that res put restrictions on sexuality. And so since 1972, our United Methodist Church has been debating with a lot of anger and hatred and vitriol about whether or not we will be a denomination that acknowledges the full spectrum of gender sexuality in the church by ordaining people who are LGBTQ and by celebrating the weddings of people who are LGBTQ. That has become the conversation since 1972. And as you can imagine, and I'm seeing some of y'all shake your heads because you've been a part of these conversations for a long time, it is exhausting. And as you know, as people deepen more and more into their own ideology, it becomes harder and harder to have a fruitful conversation with them. And because of the politics, both in the church and in our country, and the ways that those are built up together, which is a really interesting uh, parallel, you can see deeper and deeper and wider and wider div divisions that start to creep up within our denomination, and it's toxic, to use an accurate but heavy word. And so that's sort of where we are now. We've gone through several series of some folks within the Methodist Church trying to eliminate the language that was adopted in 1972, and you've got other folks on the other end of the spectrum who are trying desperately to hold churches accountable to the standards that have been put into the Book of Discipline uh, since 1972, but long before that. And that is where the division exists within the Methodist Church. And so it's important for you to know some of that, and there's a lot more to know, but that fundamentally is where we are because there's a lot of language being used within the Methodist Church, especially now because a new denomination was just formed uh, last month, two months ago, called the, the GMC, not the automotive, uh, not the cars. Uh, the Global Methodist Church was just established, and they're trying to convince some United Methodist churches to leave the United Methodist Church 
and join the Global Methodist Church, which means there's a lot of toxic and inaccurate language that is equating full inclusion of LGBTQ folks, which I believe is not only essential, but at a part of the movement of the spirit. And I'll talk more about that in a second. And um, they're starting to equate that ideology with, uh, like, not believing in the Trinity, no longer giving authority to the spirit within our lives. Uh, uh, the, the, the people who want full inclusion just aren't reading the Bible and don't care about what's in the Bible. The people who, like, they're starting to equate all of these things with our faith life. So if you believe in full inclusion, you must not be Christian, uh, not a real Christian. And so you see, now the, now the argument is not about whether full inclusion should be a part of our church. It's about whether or not you are actually a faithful person. That fundamentally is the problem, and here's where Galatians comes in, that Paul was dealing with in the first century in the church of Galatia. This is not a new problem, right? So here, like even more context, back 2,000 years ago, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, came to the community of Galatia. It's written about in the book of Acts, chapter 15. Paul comes to Galatia, and there he starts to meet some of these uh, folks who had been longtime friends of his, who he had introduced them to the faith. They're all Gentiles. None of them were part of the ancestral faith of the Hebrew people, and they were all being incorporated through the good news that we can be adopted into the family of God through Christ's faith and not through the practice of circumcision. In the first century, there was a cohort within Jerusalem that was pushing against that, and they were sending delegations out from Jerusalem to go to cities like Galatia to insist that they are not actually faithful, not actually a part of God's faith, God's community, not actually a part of the family of God, unless they circumcise and unless they follow all of the codes of law and the Torah, right? A practical decision was being projected on about, like, are you actually a faithful person at all? You see how this vision is not new, and to think about it as something new makes it feel like it's, like, just ours. This is the, this is the challenge that Christianity has had to face since the very moment Christ died and the church started building itself. We have always had cohorts within our community of faith that insist on overstating the rules against a cohort who is all about freedom, faithfulness, movement of spirit, and not the, not the works righteousness of some, but about the true faithfulness of God. You see, that distinction is so important. So as United Methodists, we have these two camps doing the same thing. Do we follow strict rules? Maybe. Do we trust in the Spirit's movement? The people here are not faithless. 
right? The, the, the church in Jerusalem, who've been longtime uh, members of the Hebrew people who have been following all the laws as best as they can and also relying on the presence of Christ to free them from any burdens that the laws carry. Like, they're, they're still being faithful. They're still doing good. The problem is that these people who have been longtime members of a particular kind of community are insisting that the norms of their society should have power over a community that they know nothing about. Do you see this distinction? And so Paul comes back into the city of Galatia, or he starts hearing rumors about what's happening in the city of Galatia, and he pens a letter. And fundamentally, at the root of the letter of Galatia, the letter to the Galatians, he is wrestling with this polarizing idea. about how we interpret scripture as a living document within changing circumstances guided by the Spirit. If Christ is real, if Christ brings redemption to all the world, if Christ fulfills the law on our behalf, what do we do? What is our calling? Do we strictly adhere to all of the rules of Torah? Or do we live in absolute total freedom guided by the Spirit? And what I think Paul does a really good job of doing is he resists the law's authority and power with some intentional language. In fact, saying that the law itself is a proof of sin in our life because we can't fulfill these laws on our own, right? He acknowledges our inability to do it. And so laws become the symbol of our failure as human beings. And so because the rules themselves depict us as incapable of following every law, we have this new freedom. And that freedom allows us to walk faithfully forward, trusting that God is carrying us into something larger than we might ever expect. And he doesn't reject the law. In fact, if you read the scripture, you would, uh, it's very, do we, does this mean that the law has no power over our lives? By no means, right? He's very clear about that. By no means do we reject this. But clearly God's doing something new. And to reject the movement of the Spirit would actually be the greater rejection of God. And so, this is where it, I think, is helpful only for us as people within an institution. We have a sort of choice that we get to make on a daily basis. What rules are important for me to maintain my faithfulness? Right? Some really handy ones would be the ones handed to us by John Wesley, right? Uh, to do no harm. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Do no harm, do good, and attend to the ordinances of God. Stay in love with God. Do your practices. Read scripture. Pray. Talk with your friends and family about your, your faith life and how that's challenging you. Serve the poor. Serve people that are your neighbors. Do all these things. That's, those are the rules that John Wesley has. Beyond that, we live as free people in the spirit. So what, what rules do we hold internally 
What rules do we hold over our neighbors? I'll give you a clue. It's none. <laughs> it's zero. It's no rules. I don't, I don't have any power over anybody in this room or even beyond this room. That's not my role. Uh, it's not. And as soon as I step beyond that, please, someone come and tell me, Patrick, you're going too far, and I will gladly receive that information. Um, so we have rules internally that help keep us faithful to what God's doing. And then we have grace for the people around us who have a different experience of God. And Paul gives us some pretty clear guidelines about what the Spirit does. If the Spirit has any power over us, if the Spirit is in our hearts, in our souls, if the Spirit is the one animating the work that we're doing, it always comes with the same fruits. Um, I think the first one was like, it was judgment, anger, vitriol, othering. Am I missing some? None of that, right? Like, any words of hatred are not coming from the Spirit, because what comes of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control. That's the only one with barriers on it. You see? Not control over you not control over some elected official, not control over the people who are creating such division in the Methodist church. It's control of self. How am I interacting with the world around me? Is it loving? Is it patient? Is it good? And those become my markers of what faithfulness looks like. So then as we're following the winds of the Spirit, as soon as I start to notice hatred welling up in me, it's time for me to take a step back. Where is this coming from? Why is it coming up for me? Why am I feeling such animosity towards a friend or a colleague or a loved one? Why is that welling up? And process that for my own control over myself, not so that I can control them and tell them how they should be better so that I don't feel hatred for them. You see how manipulative that is, right? I'm angry at you, so you need to be different. Like, that's a wild thing to do. How can we interact with the world from a place that is loving, patient, kind, good? That should be a fundamental question through anything happening on an institutional level or our own personal lives? Am I being loving, patient, kind, good? That doesn't mean that we aren't ever angry. That, that misses the point. But what is guiding our actions? What is guiding our interactions? What is beginning to define our lives? Because in our denomination, in our country right now, what I tend to see most is fear, anger, and hatred guiding most of our actions and reactions within the world. And then we wonder why 
everybody's so pissed off all the time. Well, maybe we should just take a step back through the help of God. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon from North Decatur United Methodist Church. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at ndumc.org. Thank mm-hmm. you.